You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. All right, we're going to read from Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 28. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from their transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive." Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent, and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest entered the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly eagerly waiting for him. This is the reading of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, we're going to dismiss ages two to four. There we go. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. Welcome. Um, praise the Lord just for our opportunity to spend time worshiping together. Uh, I have two house cleaning items before I turn our attention to the book of Hebrews. Uh, the first has to do with the confession that I need to make. Um, I have overpromised and underdelivered. <laughs> uh, as many of you know, uh, we're celebrating five years, five years of as being a church. We, we're going to praise God for that. Um, at the end of our service, we'll turn our attention to the cafeteria. Uh, I initially was hoping to have a church service, give like a 5, 10, 20-year vision, you know, vision casting, and then celebrate. But I just realized this week I just put too much into 
one time space. So what I'm going to do, and this is actually probably in God's providence, actually. Um, I have a denominational meeting. I've got to go to that. And then after that, I'm going to schedule some type of vision meeting where we can, after we've celebrated five years, hey, what does the next five, 10, 20 years look like? Because here's the, the reality is we want to build something, continue to build something by God's grace that lasts um, well before we're gone, right? I'm praying and hoping that this church exists and my kids' kids will will uh, praise Jesus at Redemption Hill Church. And so I want to put that before you, but I'm going to do that probably in an isolated context. And so that was my folly. I wish I could have um, communicated that more clearly, but just in putting everything together, just can't do everything that we want to. And that's okay. So we will get to that. Um, and so God is good. We're going to celebrate five years. We're going to celebrate what it means to be part of Redemption Hill Church. The second house cleaning item is to let you know um, that today is Reformation Day. Woohoo, indeed. And that is something actually worth pointing out. Uh, going forward, I want to build Reformation Day kind of into our church calendar. Uh, I don't know what that's going to look like yet, um, but I think it's important to highlight the work of God that began, not began, but was really uh, took place in the 16th century and continues to today. The events of the Reformation served as a massive correction to what was taking place at the time in the Catholic Church. We, Redemption Hill Church, are beneficiaries or beneficiaries of the men and women who advanced an unadulterated gospel around the 16th century. Actually, it was if you get into church history and you get into the weeds, there's things going on before that. But we all kind of look at Martin Luther, you know, 1517, October 31st, nailing the uh, uh, 95 Thesis on the Wittenberg Chapel door. We all kind of looked at that. But there was a lot going on in God's providence, just like boiling pots all throughout Western Europe. And I'll even make this audacious statement. The events of the Reformation are vastly more significant than, say, the events of the Revolutionary War. <laughs> vastly more significant. And uh, so I think taking a moment saying Reformation Day, yes, um, let's praise God for the work he's doing. And we'll do that going forward as a church body. Just kind of like what we do with Pentecost as well. We're taking a time every one time a year to highlight Pentecost. We'll do the same thing. All right, now on to the preaching of God's word. Before I pray, it is worth pointing out that we're still talking about covenants. Uh, broadly speaking, we're talking about the relationship between the old and the new covenant. More specifically, we see how the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants, which are under the old covenant, we see how that impacts our understanding of the new covenant. Uh, just so you know, after chapter 10, the book of Hebrews does take a turn. So if you're like, hey, uh, you know, we're like on week five talking about covenants. When's this break going to take place? Well, it's not, a, it's, it's not a hard turn when we get to Hebrews 10, but there is, after Hebrews 10, but there is a little bit of a turn um, regarding kind of the content of Hebrews. So you can think of like the book of Hebrews like this. Chapters 1 to 6 is about Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than Joshua. Then we get to chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10. We're kind of talking about covenants. Then we get to chapter 11, 12, 13. Now we're kind of getting some of the, more of the practical matters of the Christian life. All of it's obviously tied together, but long story short, that's the, the general flow of the book of Hebrews. And, and by the way, uh, I've had many great kind of offline conversations uh, with folks in this church about what we've been going through in the book of Hebrews. And that, um, 
I rejoice in that, knowing that you're wrestling and I'm wrestling with what God has said through his word. So I'm still learning and I'm learning with you, which is a great privilege. So with all that said, let me pray. I need God's help and then we'll get into today's text. I invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, first we just pause to thank you um, for five years of your faithfulness building your church. In many ways, this church is a testimony of your grace and mercy and love. And Lord, as we turn our attention to your word, I just want to be faithful to what you've already said. And so, Lord, I need your help. I've come underneath your word this morning, knowing that you have spoken and you continue to speak. Pray for the friends that are in front of me this morning. In the power of the Spirit, would you speak to them, help them to see your truth, and then apply your truth. I pray this all in Christ's name. In seminary, I read a book called Ideas Have Consequences. It's by uh, Richard Weaver. It's one of those books that it's worth going back to um, from time to time. Uh, It was written in 1948, and it just has this lasting effect in terms of some of the points that he's making. I thought thought of that, and then I thought about today's text. I said perhaps Hebrews chapters 7 to 10 can have a similar title, which is Actions have consequences. Actions have consequences. What we are reading about is that the ultimate and final sacrifice of Jesus Christ has consequences for his people. Under the new covenant, we see that the people of God have been given so much because of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Last week, we noticed that one of the consequences of the act of Christ's sacrificial death was to purify the conscience. Your conscience, my conscience. Read with me Hebrews 9, verses 13 and 14, which is the lead-in for today's passage. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Because of the death of the Son of God, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 8.1. Our conscience does not feel the crushing weight of sin. And we rejoice in that. Man's sin is like a crushing weight. But now we say no because we look to the cross. The man on the cross dealt with our sins. But the man on the cross, who was buried in a tomb, did not stay in the tomb. He rose and walked away from the grave. The action of the resurrection of Jesus Christ also has consequences. The people of God do not need to fear death. I think we all can ask ourselves that question. Do you fear, do I fear death? And if the answer is yes, then you're missing the point of the resurrection. You do not need to fear death because he walked out of the tomb. Another consequence of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ is that Jesus now mediates on our behalf, thus offering God's elect people in this eternal covenant. That's the language used in today's text. 
the mediation of Christ is why you now, in part, have access to God. So what does it mean for a person to mediate? That word keeps popping up, and I'm just going to kind of highlight it this morning. If mediation is why a Christian has access to God, I think it's essential to understand this role of Christ. For there to be a mediator means that there are two sides of, say, a dispute, right? A mediator intervenes in the dispute with the goal of resolving the the conflict or the dispute. Like mediation happens all the time in our society, right? Judges in a courtroom mediate. Referees in a basketball game mediate between two teams. When two friends get into an argument, they may need to bring in a third friend to intervene. Now let's bring this close to home. We have been seeing from the book of Hebrews that priests under the old covenant mediated between Israel and God. Why was this happening? The people of God kept breaking their covenant by disobeying the law. It's like God said, do not put your hand on the stove, son. And what does he keep doing over and over? Puts his hand on the stove. He's like, God's like, don't, don't walk into the road without my hand. And it's like Israel is saying to God over and over, not only am I looking at the road, I see the traffic, and I'm going to willfully disobey and walk into the road with all the traffic. Not only looked at the road and noticed all the traffic, but they willfully went into the street knowing that God was watching the entire time. I mean, how is that not me sometimes, right? Don't do that, son. Ah, really? To say it playfully, the sacrificial bull and goats business was booming under the old covenant. As we have seen over and over in the book of Hebrews, the old covenant had its limitations. It had its place in God's plan of redemption, but the old covenant, the old covenant and the mediation that took place had limitations. But what about the new covenant? How is the new covenant different from the old? Hebrews 9, 15-28 really spells it out for us. The first fact is that the power of the cross and the consequences of Christ's mediation work eschatologically in the present, future, and the past. We just sang the song, Power of the Cross. What is is the power of the cross? It saves. In other words, the saints of the Old Testament are with the Lord because of the future promise that was fulfilled in Christ. I mean, we've, we've kind of been, it's been hinting at this the whole time throughout Hebrews and talking about Moses and Abraham over and over. And then I read Hebrews 9, 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of the new covenant, he being Christ, so that those who are called, remember Abraham was called by God, it was credit to him that he was a man of faith, who are called may receive the eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions, transgressions committed under the first covenant. I mean, you ever, ever wondered why or how Abraham, Moses, and David were saved well before Jesus was born? I know I asked that question a long time ago. And this is really going to get spelled out in Hebrews 11, actually. The answer 
is that Christ has fulfilled the promise that was made to Abraham before God created the old covenant with Moses. Now here's Genesis 17. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant. There's that language again, eternal, everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to be your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you, after you the land of your sojourning. All the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. Like think chronologically for a moment. In Genesis 3.16, we hear the gospel for the first time. God makes a promise to right the wrongs. In Genesis 12, 14, and 17, God makes a covenant with Abraham. In Exodus, God makes another covenant with Moses. And in 2 Samuel 17, God makes another covenant with King David. All this leads to someone greater under the new covenant. Through Abraham, God made physical and spiritual promises. Um, Some of the physical promises were fulfilled in the Mosaic Covenant, but the spiritual promises were fulfilled in Christ. For example, a physical promise that was made by God is that he would give his covenant people the land of Canaan. However, there were future spiritual promises that would be fulfilled in Christ. Namely, an everlasting covenant was fulfilled. In other other words, the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants were not the saving covenants because they did not offer the blood of Christ. They contained promises, promises fulfilled in the Old and New Covenants, but no one was saved under the Old Covenant. The saints of the Old Testament were saved through the New Covenant, even as we are today. That is the only way anyone has ever received the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. It is the only covenant of which Christ, what we, who we call our federal head. That is why it is the only covenant that can be adequately titled the covenant of grace. It has also been a part of God's plan to save his predestined people through the blood of the eternal word, the Son of God. The point that the Old Covenant is insufficient to save is highlighted in Hebrews 9, verses 18 to 24. The author of Hebrews continues to make his point by talking about blood. You can continually see that word if you've been reading the book of Hebrews. Blood, blood. We saw this last week. And the importance of blood is revisited once again. The blood of calves and goats with this admixture was sprinkled on everything in the tabernacle to purify the tabernacle. The point of blood represents the forgiveness of sins. But here's the crux of the argument in this part of Hebrews. The tabernacle and everything that took place in the tabernacle was a copy or type that pointed to something heavenly. Identifying copies and types in the Bible is actually really helpful for your Bible reading. For example, let's say I show you a picture of a $100 bill. And I tell you one day that I will give you the actual $100 bill. The image is a copy or type of the real thing. And then one day I fulfill my promise by giving you the Benjamin, right? It's the guy who's on the the $100 bill. Take a look at verses 23 and 24. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. 
For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. We'll talk more about the mediating status of Christ in a moment, but notice, again, the relationship between the Old and the New Covenants. The Old Covenant, with its ceremonial rituals and rites and sacrifices, set up the New Covenant. It's like an assist in basketball or that final pass in volleyball before the spike. We need to see the old, the beauty of the old, in order to really understand the new. And I've said this before, but we, but we can do away with the notion that the old is bad or irrelevant. That's not true. Nothing could be further from the truth. The old covenant helps us to see the beauty of Christ. It helps us to see why Christ is superior. Another distinction between the old and the new is the need to sacrifice. We saw this several weeks ago, and here it is one more time. Jesus is the final and ultimate sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. Period. There's no need to pretend we are re-sacrificing Christ, for example, when we celebrate the Lord's table every single Sunday. Now, do I think celebrating the Lord's table is a special and spiritual moment? Yeah, of course. But the work has been done. The final day of atonement has taken place. And we should be constantly praising God for the work of Christ on the cross. Now now here's the line that sums up the fulfillment of the sacrificial and ceremonial laws of the Old Covenant. It's verse 26. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages Put a highlight on that. The end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Do you see the eschatological accent of Hebrews 9 verse 26? When the crucifixion took place, verse 26 seems to suggest that one age or time frame has ceased and something new has begun. Which makes sense with the language we've been using. Old and new, right? So, If it is out with the old and in with the new, what's going on? I think the point that is being made is that Christ has ushered in the kingdom of God. Under the new covenant, the kingdom of God is here. And there are plenty of downstream effects. This is a a critical point, I think. Too many Christians live like, like they're in prison. When Christians live like they're in prison, the gospel is functionally neutered. We're not supposed to live like that under Christ's rule in his kingdom. We are free people. Perhaps you could be in a physical prison, but you are a free people. Free from the condemnation of sin. Free from the fear of death. We are free. The rule and reign of God's kingdom is taking place in a particular way. The rule and reign in this age are taking place through through all God's people, through his local churches, this local church. I mean, I, I do not want to overstate the point today, but I do not want to stray too far from the primary purpose of today's passage. But but the implication of one age ending and another one beginning is that Christ rules working in and through his local church. 
This local church, the local church down the street, the one in China, the one in Uganda, the one in Afghanistan, the underground church in Pakistan. God is at work in his kingdom. Heaven has met with earth through Christ. And now Christ, by entering into heaven itself, verse 24, is mediating on our behalf. So, Let's dig into this idea that Christ is our mediator in his kingdom, in this new age. I mentioned that a person who mediates is standing between two sides. If we think about this in judicial terms, there's a judge and a defendant. Y'all have seen the courtroom scene, right? In some movie or uh, that daytime courtroom nonsense, right? We got the judge and you got the defendant. And if you've been wrestling with the gospel and the Christian faith, I encourage you to pay close attention to what I'm about to say. The judge is sitting on the bench. And he is the judge who understands right from wrong, justice from injustice. You, my friend, are sitting in the defendant's seat. You are a sinner, a wretched sinner. You have committed ongoing acts of rebellion. You keep putting your hand on the stove or you keep walking into the street with all the traffic. The judge has every right to convict you because of your sins and to send you to jail. He has every right. But for some reason, which you cannot explain, you have the only lawyer worthy of the judge's ear. He represents you. He mediates on your behalf. He stands up, walks around the table, which you're sitting at, and he stands right in front of the judge. Suddenly, you can't see the judge, and the judge can't see you. You do not know what's happening, but then you sense deep conviction of your sins. You know you deserve the clinker. And if you're being brutally honest with yourself, you know you deserve hell. You then do the only thing you know how to do. You heard of what to do because your parents took you to church and the preacher constantly circled back to this point. You need to repent of your sin. In tears, you cry out to be forgiven and finally surrender to God. In an instant, you can't explain it, everything changes because you now know that you deserve the clinker because you know that the next moment is even more powerful and meaningful. You can now see the judge the mediator has not moved, but with a new heart and with new eyes, you see him. He does not look harsh. He does not look mean. He looks like a judge who's good, kind, and just. And once again, the judge sees you. But he sees someone different. The judge sees the mediator now in you. As a result, the judge no longer sees a child of wrath, Ephesians 2, but he sees a son or daughter. How did all this happen? What didn't you see with your physical eyes, but you now see by faith? Here's what happened. Your mediator went to the judge to take on the punishment that you deserve. He didn't cut a deal to reduce your sentence because of your crimes. He took on all of your sentence. 
without a mediator, you are destined to spend eternity in hell. Without your mediator, you would spend eternity in hell, period. But because there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, 1 Timothy 2.5, you stand and hear these words, not guilty. But here's the deal, and this is what many Christians are not told. You are not guilty because you didn't commit the crimes. You did commit the crimes. You are not guilty because the Son took on your punishment for your crimes. The death sentence on your head was executed on him at the cross. And as a result, you've been cleared of all charges. Earthly things could not save you. Your perception of all your good works could not save you. Only God from heaven can save you. Anyone who has been saved has been touched by heaven. We, we constantly see this, this relationship between the earthly things and the heavenly things, right? Over and over and over. We're going to continue to see that throughout the book of Hebrews. Anyone who has been saved has been touched by heaven. Perhaps my last statement does not go far enough. Anyone who has been saved has been enveloped by heaven. You, you could not find the water, but it found you, and now you're swimming in an ocean, in the ocean of heaven. All because Christ is your perfect mediator, and now the Holy Spirit is at work in you. I mean, that is good news. I mean, when you pause to think about it, what I just said is actually truly stunning. Like, I'm even in this moment... I don't want to pause too long, but I'm just trying to wrestle and grasp with the profundity of it all, the depth of it all. What I do deserve, but yet what I have through God's grace and mercy and love. There was a time when the people of God needed a tabernacle and then the temple to dwell with God. They needed to perform all the duties on the right day and at the right time. The people of God needed a priest to enter through the curtain into the most holy place on the Day of Atonement every one time, every single year. But all that has been done away with. God now directly dwells with his people because of the circumcision of the heart. And just when you think God could not do more for his, for his covenant people, we read this in Hebrews 9, verse 27 and 28. And just... As it is appointed for, men, for, for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. A second time. Not to deal with sin. That's, been, that's done. That's done. But to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Christ died. He walked away from the tomb. He ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father, reigning over his kingdom. He has decisively dealt with sin. But the job is not done. Just as God promised to crush the head of the serpent, Genesis 3.16, the Son of God is going to come back to complete the redemption plan. 
the people of God labor in God's kingdom to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, near and far, until he returns. Like, we want that kind of faith and that kind of eagerness. Oh, he's coming back. He's coming back. And either until he comes back or before I die, I'm going to work on his behalf in his kingdom. I'm going to share the gospel. I'm going to share the good news that, is, that has impacted me with everyone else. Like, do we have an eagerness for that? We labor, but we labor for our one true king. Um, Herman Bavink is a theologian um, from the Netherlands. I think sums up our current age and the age to come really well. So I'll quote him here. According to the New Testament, the last part of the present ion, which means age, began with the first coming of Christ, so that now we live in the last days or the last hour. The ion to come starts with his second coming. And just skip all the passages there. And this age to come begins with the day of the Lord. That is, the time in which Christ appears, raises the dead, executes judgment, and renews the world. Apologize for having all that Greek and all those texts in there. Made it clunky to, to read. I'll try to sum up Hebrews 9, verses 15 to 28. Because Jesus Christ is the ultimate and final sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, he is able to be the mediator between God and man, thus offering an eternal covenant. The people of God are part of, part of an eternal covenant that will find its culmination with the return of Christ. But until that day, until that day, Christians are called by God to labor on joyfully, joyfully, Christians should be the happiest people on earth because of all that God has done and all that he will do. We are the, should be the happiest, most optimistic people, not because of some personality trait and not because of circumstances, but because of Christ. Because of Christ. We look at the king of the universe and know that he sits on his throne ruling and reigning. And just as God has fulfilled his promises given under the old covenant, like he's fulfilled all that because that we can have confidence that when he says he's going to come back, we can trust and believe by faith. Guess what? He's coming back. He's coming back. And we can say, praise the Lord and amen. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.